Delighted that you're here. We have a good number in spite of the fact that we have several who are out sick. Appreciate the presence of everyone. We hope you've got your Bible with you. Start by looking at John James chapter 5 and 16, a very familiar text to all of us. Confess your trespass to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, the text says. This is one of the first passages we think of when we think about prayer. If this were a Bible class and I were to say, cite me a passage that is your favorite about prayer. There may be another one mentioned first and another one mentioned, but somewhere before very long, someone would be citing James 5 and 16. It's one of the first we think of when we think about prayer. Most of us have it memorized, if not the entire verse, the last phrase of that verse we have memorized, or at least the concept of that which says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We have committed that to memory because that gives us confidence and assurance as we pray. If this principle was not true, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, you wouldn't have any confidence as you pray. You wouldn't have any assurance as you pray. That's why we have committed at least the concept to our memory. There's a lot to learn about prayer from that one phrase. So if you don't already have your Bible open, turn to James 5. You might even underline the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now let's talk about that phrase as it's found in that text. What does that mean? The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Well, let's look at some various translations of that some of which may be more wooden and technical and give us the sense of that. Others enlighten us as to what the word may mean or what the phrase may mean. The American Standard Version says, The supplication of a righteous man availeth much in its working. Now that's interesting, in its working. We'll come back to that phrase later. Darby, which is a wooden translation like the American Standard translation, the fervent supplication of the righteous man has much power. The NIV, which is not wooden at all, as you know, it is kind of a free and eclectic kind of translation, but it does give the sense the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Young's literal translation, very strong, is a working supplication of a righteous man. A little awkward wording, but gets to the thought. William's translation, an upright man's prayer, when it keeps at work, is very powerful. The New American Standard says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And the new century says, when a believing person prays, great things happen. That's kind of loose, but it gets to the heart of what the passage is saying. When a believing person prays, great things happen. Let's talk about the context. So if you're not already at James 5, let's go back to James chapter 5 and look at the context of that passage that we might understand what it means the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. In the context, I want you to notice that afflictions are under consideration. 
But he's talking about persecution. He's talking about afflictions. He started in chapter 1 talking about the temptations and trials that we face. So here is affliction that a child of God is facing. So in chapter 5, the whole chapter is about encouragement in the midst of oppression. So you're going to be oppressed. Look at verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your uh, miseries that are now coming upon you. So there is oppression coming from someone that's talked about in the context. Perhaps we understand better at verse 10. He said, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke to you in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. And so you need patience, you need endurance in the midst of oppression. Look at how the prophets endured their oppression. So he's talking about affliction and oppression. Look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. That is, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of affliction, you ought to pray. And then right in that context, he says, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Matthew Henry observed that in the days of affliction, nothing is more seasonable than prayer. And it's no surprise when we get to verse 13, in the midst of all the oppression that he's describing, your need for enduring through that oppression and trial and temptation, you need to understand what prayer is and what it does and how powerful it is. So let's talk about what that means. The text says, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Woods, in his commentary, said that means the effect of a prayer by a good man is great. Absolutely so. I said we'd come back to the American standard. In its working, now that's interesting. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man is effective in its working, the text says. And that's a little more literal than the King James or the... Uh, New King James and some of the others intended to be so. But in its working, in other words, when it's exercised, that his prayer is powerful, prayer is a tool, but a tool is of no avail unless you use that tool. So I'm learning from this text that prayer is powerful when it's used, when it's exercised, and it can do great things. So let's talk about praying with confidence. That's what this text gives us, is confidence as we pray. So let's talk about praying with confidence. Are you praying with confidence? And you say, well, I pray often. Okay, when you pray, are you praying with confidence, like this text describes, that you firmly understand and you firmly believe that the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man is great in its working or is effective? or accomplishes great things, depending on the translation you may use. So let's talk about praying with confidence. Four things we want to consider. First of all, when we pray with confidence, we understand the privilege to pray. When we pray with confidence, we understand the privilege that we have to pray. Now that is implied in the very statement. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You have at your disposal a tool that is an honor to use, is what he's saying. We'll see more about that in other texts. In prayer, we have access to the Almighty. That's what prayer does. So let's go to some simple passages. Prayer is talking to God. Paul said, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Well, here is his heart's desire, but that doesn't mean he's praying. He's desiring something. Here's something I want. But when you're able to take that desire that you have 
and you're able to express it and take it to the Almighty. That's what prayer is. So let's go back to Romans 10.1. Brethren, my heart's desire and expression to God is that Israel might be saved. There'd be another way of wording that, wouldn't it? So what I'm learning from that is prayer is talking to God and taking our thoughts to the Almighty God. Let's go to another text. 1 John 3 and in verse 1. John seems to be with excitement exclaiming in 1 John 3 what a privilege it is to be a child of God and all that it entails. Look at 1 John chapter 3. It's all about sonship. All about being the sons and, and the children of God. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. In other words, what a privilege it is that we would be allowed to be the child of God. What a privilege and honor it is that we, are being His child, can talk to our God. And so here we have access to the Almighty. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. We're coming back to that passage about its power in a moment. But what I'm learning from that is we have His ear. Now you'd think I was a powerful person if I told you I have the ear of the governor. I can just call the governor at any time. And anything we want to be accomplished for Bedford County, I can call the governor and he'll see that it gets done. And he says he'll see what he can do about that. And I can just call him at any time. I can call him day or night, middle of the night. I just call the governor and I say, Governor Lee, I want you to do this for Bedford County. You'd say, you are powerful. Wow. You can just call the governor anytime and get, get, get what you want. And he listens to you. You've got his ear. Well, we have the ear of the Almighty God. What an honor and what a privilege that is. Now, we have direct approach to one who is in control of all things. Now, it's, it's one thing to be able to talk to powerful people or influential people, but they may not have control of all things. But you stop and think about the honor and the privilege that you can talk to the Almighty God and He is the one that is in control of all things. Remember the throne scene in Revelation 4? In the throne scene, God who was sitting on His throne in control of all was declared to be the Almighty, the all-powerful God. So I'm talking to the one who is the Almighty God who is in control of the world. That's what Revelation 4 is about. By the way, Revelation 4 was one who is in control of the kings. And dominions and power like the Roman Empire. He's in control of that. But let's go further. He has power to do even more than we can ask. Matthew 19 and verse 26. With God all things are possible. Because He's God. But in Ephesians 3 and in verse 20. Paul emphasizes that He can do even more than we could ask. Now let's go back to my governor illustration. I might have access to the governor, but there's no way he can do more than I can ask. I can ask more than he can ever accomplish. I can ask more than the, the funds would allow to do for Bedford County. So I come and I tell him, I want all brand new roads and all throughout Bedford County. I want you to send half of the budget of the, of the state to Bedford County. He's not going to do it. I can ask more than he can ever do. But there's no way you can go to the Father and ask more than he's capable of doing. He can do more than you can ask. You think of the power of that. But let's go further. We can appeal for help in time of need. In other words, he tells us, I want you to come to me when you are in need, 
And I want you to talk to me about your needs and make an appeal to me. Let's go back to James chapter 5. It is in a context of suffering. It's in a context of affliction. It's in a context of trials. In a context of temptation that he encourages it. Is any suffering? Let him pray. And by the way, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse 16. In Hebrews chapter 4, as you're turning there, you may be reminded, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 go together. A parallel is drawn between the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, wandering in the wilderness and falling before they were made their promised land, and us having come out of the bondage of sin, living the Christian life, and it's possible we could fall before we make our promised land. That's the parallel drawn. Now in the middle of that, there's going to be some trials and temptation and some struggles. So we need some help. So look at verse 14, Hebrews chapter 4. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our profession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But in all points was tempted like we are yet without sin. He understands your struggles. He understands your problems. He understands your difficulties. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you're struggling and you're discouraged, you can go and get some help from the Lord. Not on the screen, but I would add to that 1 Peter 5 and in verse 7. Cast your cares upon Him for He cares for you. He's saying, come to me with your problems. Come to me with your temptations. Come to me with your struggles and bring them and let me help you with them. Here's what I'm learning from that. If I pray with confidence, I must appreciate the privilege of prayer. If you're approaching prayer and you don't think, you know, this is no big deal. This no, this, why, I mean, this is no big honor. Then you're not praying with confidence. If you pray with confidence, you understand the privilege of prayer. But here's the second thing. And that is, this passage talks about passion for prayer. If I pray with confidence, I must have passion in prayer. Go back to our text in James chapter 5. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. The text doesn't say that prayer is effective and prayer is powerful. But the fervent prayer of a righteous man, that's passion for praying. It describes being earnest. And sincere in our prayer. In other words, from the heart and it being genuine. Go to Matthew chapter 6. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, as you recall, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Chapter 6 focuses on the fact that in my kingdom, this has to do with your relationship to God. And it's one of sincerity in your relationship to God and not hypocrisy where you're putting on a front and a veneer. And so here's what he talks about in Matthew chapter 6. Like the charitable deeds. He said you don't do those to be seen of men. You do those to deal with your relationship with God. Later on he talks about fasting at verse 16. You don't make a great pretense and long faces so everybody knows I'm sacrificing for my God. But you do that in secret. Now in the context, let's go back to the middle of that. When you pray, verse 5, do not be like the hypocrites who stand on the street corner that you may be seen of men, they have their reward. 
But notice verse 6, when you pray, go into your room, and when you shut the door, pray to your father who's in the secret place. He's not saying, go let people see you pray. What he's saying is, make sure your prayer is sincere and from the heart. And it's not a pretense, not a show. It's genuine. That's a fervent prayer. Prayer that is earnest and sincere, it takes prayer seriously. It puts something into the prayer. Let me give you an example of that. Luke chapter 22. You say, give me an example of someone that you would say, that's an earnest prayer. That's an effective, earnest prayer. Look at Luke 22 and in verse 44. This is when Jesus was praying in the garden. Verse 44 says, in agony he prayed more earnestly and swept became like drops of blood falling to the ground. He's putting something into his prayer. It meant something to him. It's sincere. Serious. And it's from the heart. Now those who have a passion for pray, prayer, pray, first of all, often. You have a passion for prayer. So I believe in prayer. I didn't ask you if you believed in prayer. Do you have passion for prayer? Those who have passion for prayer pray often. Let me give you some examples without tracing those references. You are familiar with these. In Psalm 55, the psalmist, in the midst of what one writer calls the psalm of the sore distressed, which is what James 5 is about, by the way. Morning, noon, and evening, he said he prayed to God. He prays often. Daniel 6, remember Daniel, as was his custom since the early days. This is later in his time. Since his early days, he prayed three times a day. Prayed often. And Jesus, the text says in Luke chapter 5, that he withdrew himself and went to pray as he often did. He prayed often. Those who have a passion for prayer, pray often. Those who have a passion for prayer, make time for prayer. You have a passion for prayer? You say, oh yeah, I've got a passion for prayer. But quite often as we think we have a passion for prayer, we struggle to find the time because we're busy in the morning, we're busy through the day, we're, we're tired and we're busy at night and we don't make the time for prayer. Jesus made and scheduled time for prayer. In the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out into a solitary place and there he prayed. He got up early for that. He made and scheduled time for prayer. Luke 6, 12, went into the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. He was making and scheduling time for prayer. You have a passion for prayer? Those who have a passion for prayer, they pray with praise. How so? Well, let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. When Jesus taught his disciples, said, this is the manner in which you pray. We call this the Lord's Prayer, but really it's the disciples' prayer. This is what you ought to be praying. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And forgive us of our debts as we forgive. But yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. It's filled with praise. And it's a short prayer. Jeremiah 32. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 32. We often call attention to Jeremiah chapter 32, beginning at verse 16. Prayer of Jeremiah begins at verse 17, saying, O Lord God, you made the heavens and the earth, and by your great power and outstretched arm, there is nothing too hard for you. You show loving kindness to thousands and repay iniquity to the fathers, into the bosom of their children after them. You're great in counsel and mighty in work, and that's just the beginning of the list. 
You have a passion for prayer? Fill your prayers with praise. Those who have a passion for prayer, pray for others. We've already established Jesus had a passion for prayer. And he goes to Peter and he said, I have prayed for you. You particularly. Pray for you, Peter. That your faith fail not. And certainly Paul was a man of passion in prayer. And he said, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Chapter 10 and verse 1. Those who have a passion for prayer, pray with thanksgiving. Go to Philippians chapter 4 and in verse 6. Perhaps we missed the point about thanksgiving here because we're focused on the anxiety of verse 6. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. That is not just making a request, but thanking God for all that He's done and for answering your prayers. And those who have a passion for prayer, pray in faith. Like Luke 8. When, when the Lord comes, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Remember that? Luke 18, verse 1. But He spoke a parable to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now how do you connect those two phrases? Will He find faith on earth and the men ought always to pray? Men of faith are those who are always praying and continuing to pray and never gave up in prayer. We ought to pray without wrath and doubting. It means they pray in faith. They believe in prayer. Believe what prayer is and what prayer can do. Now, if I'm going to pray with confidence, then I must have passion for prayer. Are you praying with confidence? You say, I want to pray with confidence. I want to have great confidence in my prayer then recognize the privilege of prayer and pray, have a passion for prayer. But here's a third thing. This passage talks about the person who prays. It implies a privilege. It talks about a passion for prayer, but this passage also talks about the person who prays. Let's go back to our text. Let's go back to our text, Luke, uh, James 5 and verse 16. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So here's the question. Who's a righteous man? Well, literally it means, as Wood correctly said, a just man. In other words, it's a person who does right, who practices righteousness. So let's see how that term is used elsewhere. Let's go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 and in verse 29. If you know he is righteous, know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. What's he talking about? He talks about being righteous, and he talks about practicing righteousness. How do you practice righteousness? By being obedient to the will of God. One who's doing what's right, doing the will of the Lord, submitting their life to the will of the Lord. Look at 1 John chapter 3. Uh, in verse, verse 7, 1 John 3 and in verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Now what's interesting about that, that's in a context, we'll come back to this context in just a moment, of he doesn't commit sin, he doesn't continue to practice sin. Look at verse 6, verse 9. He doesn't make a practice of sin, but in contrast to that, what's he doing? He's practicing righteousness. In other words, he's doing what the will of the Lord said. Now, that doesn't mean he never does wrong. Let's stay in the context of 1 John. 
we've noticed 1 John 2, 29, 3 and verse 7 talks about one practicing righteousness. That's a righteous person. You say, well, I, I'm not a righteous person because I know there are times that I sin. Well, John acknowledges that. Let's go back to chapter 1 and in verse 8. It doesn't mean he never does wrong. That's not the righteous person. Because he said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if anybody says, you know what, I never do sin. I'm righteous. I never commit sin. They're liars. And so if the righteous person is a person who never commits sin at all under any circumstance, then no one can pray. So how do I harmonize that? Well, let's go back to chapter 3. It means he doesn't make a practice of sin. Let's go back to chapter 3 where he just talked about righteousness. Look at verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. I know it doesn't mean he never commits sin because chapter 1 and verse 8 says he does. So what does it mean he doesn't sin? He doesn't make a practice of sin in his life. Look at verse 9. Whoever is born of God does not sin. What does it mean he doesn't sin? It means he doesn't make a practice of that. I might say, you know what, I never speed. You say, well, I, I was, I've been with you and I saw you went over the speed limit just a few miles. Okay, yeah, I occasionally may do that, but I don't make a practice of that. That's not my practice. I don't do that all the time. That's not the way I live. Am I saying I never have an infraction of, oh no, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that's not my practice. And so when I say I don't sin, verse 6, verse 9, you don't make a practice of sin. So a righteous person is a man who's trying to live right and doesn't make a practice of sin in his life. It means like right living. So let's look at a few passages that tell us that right living is a condition for acceptable prayer. You say, I want to pray to God. I, I want to have that power. Well, then praying to God is powerful for the one who's trying to live right. Let's go to 1, John chapter, or 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 7. This is about the husband and how the husband conducts himself. Husbands, dwell with your wives according to understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs to the grace, uh, uh, together of the grace of life. Now follow with me at the end of the verse, that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, you conduct yourself as the husband should be, and if you don't, your prayers are hindered. So right living is part of a condition of an acceptable prayer. Look at verse 12. The eyes of the Lord over the righteous, quotation from Psalm 34, and his ears are open to their prayers, but his face is against those who do evil. Those who practice sin and continue in that, he doesn't listen. Right living is a condition, is a, a condition for acceptable prayer. Let's look at another passage along that same line. 1 John chapter 3. Verses 20 and 21, you say, well, I'm, I'm, we may have misunderstood 1 Peter. So let's see if we get the same implication from 1 John chapter 3. He said, for if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. In other words, if your conscience bothers you, God knows more about you than you do. You're probably in trouble. But look at verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. What does it mean your heart, your, uh, heart does not condemn you? It doesn't mean you, you're saying, what well, I've never sinned. But you don't know of anything you haven't corrected before God. Oh, I've sinned in my life, but I have a, I'm not living a practice in a life of sin. What about that? And whoever, and whatever, verse 22, we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Right living is a condition of acceptable prayer. Do you remember the man who was healed from his blindness? And when the Jews began to argue with him, we'll get to this in our next week's class in John chapter 8. Or, or a, week, a week later in John chapter 9, when he was uh, two weeks from the, this week, 
And he, uh, they said, this man's a sinner that, that did this. Healed you. He said, I don't know about all that. But I know this. He said, I know that God doesn't hear sinners. I know that. We know that God doesn't hear sinners. So we know that. We understand God doesn't listen to the sinners. He listens to those who are righteous. More about that when we get to John 8. Look at a couple of passages in Proverbs before we leave this point. The proverb writer reminds us, godly living has everything to do with God listening to our prayers. Proverbs 15 and in verse 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. Is the Lord listening to your prayers? Do you know you're living in a condition where the Lord's listening to me? I know I've got his ear. Is the Lord far from you? Let's go to the 28th division of the same book, Proverbs 28 and in verse 9. You're perhaps more familiar with this. The one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. You don't live in harmony with the law. You reject God's plan. And so the, even your prayer is an abomination in the sight of the Lord. Now, if I'm going to pray with confidence, I must be a righteous person. Say, I want to pray with confidence. I want to pray to God with the assurance He's hearing and answering my prayers. Then be a righteous person. One more thing we see in this text. We see the power it has. The privilege to pray. The passion for prayer. The person who does pray. But this passage saying praying with confidence involves a recognition of the power that it has. Let's go back to our text. The effective fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much, the text says. What does that mean? It avails much. It means it has great power. It has great force. There's power in prayer. It's much more than just a little power. It avails much. In other words, it's very powerful. Williams translates that. If you've ever been to the doctor and you have a problem and you, you ask the doctor, I've been, I thought about taking this for this problem, or I thought about doing this exercise for this problem. Or with this device that I found online, would this help with the problem? And the doctor's reply is, well, it won't hurt anything. What's he saying? He's saying it probably won't help. But it ain't going to hurt anything. He doesn't say it has great power. Or he may say, it might help a little. He might try it. It might help a little bit. But it's not going to cure you. Well, this text is not saying it's not going to hurt to pray. This text is not saying you might try it. It might not do anything. But it, it might help a little bit. You might, you might see something from it. But the text says it's very powerful. It avails much. Not a little bit. But there's a lot of power to it. So what the passage is saying is, God answers prayer. It may not be what you ask, but God answers and He responds. Let's consider a few passages. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and His ears are open to their prayers. Now if that text is not saying He hears in view of responding, but he's saying he hears, but he's not going to do anything, then that, prayer doesn't, that passage doesn't mean anything. Doesn't give any assurance at all. His ears are open in the sense he's listening and he's responding. Again, a quotation from Psalm 34. Let's go back to 1 John. We were there earlier. 1 John chapter 5. 
First John chapter 5, we're trying to see that prayer is indeed powerful. It doesn't just do a little bit. It, it's not one of those things that just doesn't hurt, but it does a great deal of good. It's powerful. Look at verse 14. And this is the confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that what he hears, whatever we ask, we know that we have petitions that we have asked of him. You can go to God and you can ask Him and He hears you and you can be assured that He's listening. And He's responding to that. Now, let's talk about the power that it has. Let's list some things. Here's some things that can be accomplished in prayer. What kind of power does it have? Well, the sick can be healed. Let's go back to the context of our, our passage, verse 16. Remember the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much? So if you've already left that passage, go back to James chapter 5. Let's look at the context for two or three things. What kind of power does it have? Well, the sick could be healed. We're not talking about a miraculous healing. Where you pray for the fellow who has uh, missing a leg, for example, and you pray for him and suddenly you see a leg grow. That's supernatural. That's, mir that's miracles. But the sick can be healed. Sick can be made better. How so? Look at verse 13. Is any suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elder of the church. Let him pray over him. Prayer is powerful. The sick can be healed. That's why we pray for the sick. There's something else. Verse 16, same verse. Confess your trespass toward one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That's a spiritual healing because you just acknowledged your sin. So there could be physical healing because of prayer. There can be spiritual healing, forgiveness of sin because of prayer. Same context, don't leave James 5. The weather even can be changed. You talk about power. Isn't it interesting that verse 16, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, and then he's going to illustrate his point. You know how he illustrated it? Look at verse 17. He said, Elijah was a man of a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. He's praying about the weather. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. You want to know an example of a prayer being answered? Look at Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain. Now verse 18, and he prayed again and the earth gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. You want an example of prayer being powerful? His example he gives of his Elijah praying about the weather. Weather can be changed. Maybe like when we're in the threat of a storm. And you say, what, what can I do? Well, I have no power over the weather. You, you can talk to the one who controls the weather. When we think we need rain, pray about the rain. When we need uh, dry our weather, pray. And maybe God will listen and answer that prayer accordingly. There can be the altering of God's intent, not His will. Not His law, but His intent. How so? God might have an intention to do something, and through request, God can change his intent. For example, God was ready to wipe out Sodom right then and there. And remember, Abraham asked, what if I could find 50 righteous souls? And God said, okay, I'll spare it. God just changed his intent, didn't he? What if there's 45? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if down, finally down to 10? God kept changing his intent. Remember when they made the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai 
And God was ready to destroy his people. And Moses goes and pleads for the people. And God changed his intent. Go to the book of Jonah, if you will, chapter 3. Jonah 3, God was ready to wipe out Nineveh. But as they hear the message, and they repent, then God saw their works, verse 10, and turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them. God changed his intent. Some have the concept, and we will talk about this in another lesson at some point, that the, the sovereignty of God means that God has wound the universe up and everything is preordained and every action, the fact that you go to the grocery store and that car was in your normal parking place and you had to park further away was something God had intended and there's nothing could be changed about that. The Bible doesn't teach that. And if that be the case, that kind of concept of the sovereignty of God, then praying doesn't do any, do any good because the person that was going to die was going to die anyway, and there's nothing you, God, God's intent's not going to ever be changed. And you can't pray about the weather because God's intent, He's already determined the storm is coming, and it'll never be turned back. These passages become meaningless. Let's go to one last passage in the lesson of years. Let's go to 1 Timothy 2 and in verse 2. 1 Timothy 2 and in verse 2. It has the power to have an effect on world affairs. World affairs, yes. You may not be a news junkie and you may not be keeping up with what's going on in Washington, what's going on in Congress, what the president's been doing or not doing, his policies, what's going on with Iran, conflicts with China, what's going on in Iraq, what's going on in Venezuela. But if you keep up with some of that and you get concerned and you say, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a little concerned about what Iraq's going to do. I'm, I'm concerned about their, their nuclear power. I'm concerned about the powers in Washington. I'm concerned what the senators may do or the, the House may do or what the president may do. This is not a political statement. No matter what political view you're of, if you're a Christian, you ought to be more concerned about the all-powerful God than you are your party. What that means is we ought to be praying for political affairs. We ought to be praying for world affairs. Let's go to 1 Timothy 2 and in verse 2. We should pray for kings and for all that are in authority. Well, we pray for them for their sake. No, 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 no. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. Pray for kings and all that are in authority that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives. So you mean if, if, if the Soviet Union, some of you are too young to remember the, the real threat of the Soviet Union, but older heads remember that when the threat of the Soviet Union was looming in the, in the Cold War and it looked like they could overpower us? You mean we can pray about that and maybe that will, will somehow be dissolved and maybe the Soviet Union would collapse because of prayers of righteous people? That could happen? You mean that's what could happen so that we could leave, lead quiet and peaceable lives? Absolutely. That's what the text is talking about. You mean when Iran is flexing their muscles or maybe North Korea flexing their muscles with, with some nuclear power and you say, I wish I could do something. Well, pray to God about that and pray that the right thing will be done and right decisions. When, when Trump is going into some kind of negotiation, you say, I don't like him at all. It doesn't matter. Pray for him, for our country and for peace and for tranquility and the kind of life First Timothy 2 is talking about. 
That's what you pray when you have a President Obama and when you have a President Clinton and when you have a President Bush and when you have a President Trump and when you have a President whoever it may be in the future. You pray for those. World affairs can be changed. Power in prayer. You see, if I'm going to pray with passion, I must believe the power it has. I must believe the power it has. Are you praying with confidence? You need to recognize there is a privilege to pray. In other words, it's an honor to pray. Not a duty, it is. But it's more of an honor. Have a passion for prayer. We must pray with zeal and with enthusiasm. Recognize the person of prayer. Live right to be assured you're going to be able to pray and think about the power it has. It has power when it's used. And it's working, the American Standard says. And then we are praying with confidence. There may be one or more present this morning who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?